when your hotcakes don't sell like hotcakes. <laughs> you try something else. If you're attuned to the news in recent weeks, then you know who I'm talking about. The restaurant IHOP, International House of Pancakes. And you know, I always thought that the international part of their name was the most controversial. I mean, are pancakes really an international commodity? But it's not the I in the name IHOP that people have begun to question. It's the P, which they recently flipped to make it a B. So for several days, IHOP became IHOP and left the world in suspense as to what the B stood for. Now, my money was on breakfast. I think that would make sense. Because I figured that when I go to IHOP at 1 AM and wait two hours for my food, <laughs> I don't always get pancakes. You know, sometimes I want an omelet. But alas, the B was not for breakfast. It was for burgers. The switch to IHOP garnered mixed results at best, especially if you look at the internet. The internet can be like kids at recess. A lot less rules, and usually people are pretty mean. So on the internet, a host of other restaurants dogpiled on IHOP for their switch to IHOP. Burger King, for example, switched their name on all their social media accounts to Pancake King. <laughs> Waffle House, perhaps IHOP's biggest competitor, said that even though we serve delicious burgers, we know our roots. The most relentless, though, was Wendy's, who is notoriously snarky online. When a Twitter user asked Wendy's if they were concerned about new competition from IHOP, Wendy's replied, we're not really afraid of the burgers from the place that decided pancakes were too hard. <laughs> Later, they added, remember that time when you were like seven? and thought changing your name to Thunder Bear Sword would be really super cool? <laughs> it's like that, but our cheeseburgers are still better. It's pretty ruthless. But did the move work? IHOP has since revealed that their name change to IHOP was a temporary switch to promote their burgers so that people would come into their restaurants throughout the day. It was a publicity stunt. And some say any publicity is good publicity. IHOP got people talking. I mean, I'm practically giving them free advertisement right now. <laughs> Even though they sparked conversations about their brand, it remains to be seen if the stunt actually worked, if they actually gained more customers. Now, it's probably too soon to tell, but initial results indicate that there hasn't been much of a spike at their restaurants. Maybe the buzz wasn't enough. Now, I'm no business or marketing expert, but from my vantage point, even if this stunt brought in more customers, I think it's ultimately bad for the restaurant. I don't see how you can view their stunt as not undermining their confidence in the main thing they're supposed to be about. The main thing is supposed to be pancakes. I mean, it's in their name for crying out loud. So are they saying their pancakes aren't good enough anymore? Are they saying that they should never have centered on pancakes in the first place? 
creates some doubts, doesn't it? Does lack of confidence in the main thing sound familiar to any other venture? When you look at churches today, it seems like they focus on everything but what is used to be and what is supposed to be the main thing, the ministry of the word of God. And what are they communicating by this? Are they saying that the main thing isn't good enough anymore? Are they saying that they should have never made it the main thing in the first place? Now, like IHOP, churches send mixed messages. Like IHOP, IHOP still has pancakes in their name, and churches still have church in their name. But they don't promote or focus on the main thing they're supposed to be about. It communicates that they've lost confidence in it. But just like IHOP, IHOP will reassure its customers that, you know, their pancakes are still good. They still love their pancakes. And, you know, most Christians and most churches will give lift service. We want to focus on the ministry of the word. Like, we want good preaching. We want biblical singing and, and teaching. But really, most have higher priorities. In proof that Twitter isn't completely useless, I recently read a tweet that captured this well. It's from a pastor. He said this, I'm asked, do y'all do contemporary or traditional music regularly by people interested in visiting our church? I've never been asked, do you preach the word? What are your beliefs about scripture? Does your church actively engage in missions? We've lost our way, folks. So before you talk about contemporary style and music and programs and atmosphere and creativity and missional outreach and a bunch of other things that on their own aren't necessarily bad, you have to talk about the main thing, a church's basis, a church's authority. And the main point for today's sermon is this. The word of God is the authority and center of a local church. Authority meaning that the word is what governs us and center meaning that it is the focus of everything that we do. So by means of a review last week, we showed the preciousness and importance of the local church and defined what a local church is. So this week, we see what makes a local church run and what is a local church's foundation. So, a little bit more review. The definition of a local church that was offered last week was this. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. We saw five different parts of that definition and you think the rest of this series is kind of like an expansion on that definition, like trying to zoom in even closer. So today we'll see where this definition even comes from in the first place, like the basis of it. And we'll see an expansion of that gospel preaching portion of it. Okay, so again, this sermon is unique for us. 
and that it's not centered on one passage of Scripture, but a theme that's supported by a variety of passages of Scripture. And I'll explain why the former should be the main diet of a church. Also, again, even though I don't want to be choppy and robotic, I do want you to be able to follow along with what's going on. So, here's the path we're going to take today. You'll kind of see basic outline of it in your bulletin. For the rest of our time, we're going to be answering different questions on this subject. We'll begin, like last week, with some preliminary questions. So questions like, why do we need an authority in the first place? And what else would compete to be a church's authority? Then we'll answer two more questions. Why is the word of God our authority? Think of that as kind of groundwork explanation. And finally, what does it look like for the word to be a church's authority? Think of that as more application. All right, that's kind of the road and path ahead. So dive in, begin with some groundwork before we get to the main discussion. First, we ask, why do we need an authority in the first place? For all the talk nowadays about how bad authority is, how no authority can be trusted, everyone still has an authority. Everyone bases their life on something. Even if you believe that you're supposed to think for yourself and you are the final arbiter of truth, you still have an authority. Your authority is yourself. And really, your authority is individualism and postmodernism and anti-authoritarianism. That, those things are your authority. If you turn to a place like Luke chapter 8, I'm going to ask you to turn to several places. I'll give you, again, the page numbers in the Pew Bible. Um, Luke chapter 8, if you're not familiar with looking at a Bible, uh, the, the individual books of the Bible, there are 66 of those. Those are, and the, uh, our Bibles are printed on the top left and top right corner. And then the chapter numbers are the big numbers in bold print. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers within those chapters. So if you turn to Luke chapter 8 on page 865, Luke chapter 8, you'll see that Jesus divides the world into two kinds of people. Those who are his people and those who aren't. He affirms that everyone has an authority. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. But everyone has an authority. And since everyone has an authority, it's now a matter of figuring out what the right authority is. And Jesus gives a hint of it in this passage. And even if we don't want to admit it, we need to figure this out, the right authority, because we know that we thrive under a good authority. Why else are companies always in search of better CEOs? Why do the Browns search for a better coach every two years? 
Why do U.S. citizens get so involved and so pumped up and fueled for presidential candidates? It's because we want good authority and we thrive under it. What we are arguing this morning is that the right ultimate authority is the word of God, the Bible. So if we concede that everyone has an authority and we need to figure out the right one, that leads us to another question. What else would compete to be a church's authority besides scripture? What else would compete? Well, there are probably many examples, but I think of three. And the first two of them are associated with the Roman Catholic Church. So three examples of what would compete with Scripture to be a church's authority. So we have tradition, magisterium, and pragmatism. If you're taking notes, I'll say that again. There are pens in the pews now. Um, Tradition, magisterium, and pragmatism. So you begin with tradition. The Roman Catholic Church places tradition with a capital T on par with written scripture. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't have any regard for what Christians have believed through the centuries. But when that contradicts with the clear teaching of scripture, well, we side with scripture. Scripture is our ultimate authority, not the only authority. Anyway, Catholics believe that capital T tradition is the oral teaching of the apostles, that it's been passed down through the centuries. While we do share in large agreement in many areas with Roman Catholics, their reliance on tradition as an authority is where a lot of our disagreements stem from. So it's where doctrines such as the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the Assumption of Mary come from. So the problem is that there's no indication so tradition is supposed to be the, what the, the apostles said. But there's no indication that what the apostles said contradicted with what the apostles wrote. And further, there's a historical problem. That capital T tradition was not claimed to have this high of an authority until the 14th century. That's an issue. So what else would compete to be a church's authority besides scripture? Well, we see tradition. And another thing the Roman Catholic Church would say is the magisterium. That is the official teaching office of the church, the pope and the college of bishops. So for Catholics, the uh, scripture, tradition, and magisterium are on the same plane. They have the same amount of authority. The magisterium exists alongside scripture and tradition as an authority, as they believe, it possesses authority to declare doctrines that are binding on all Catholics. So they take Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth to mean that the Holy Spirit gives the successors of the apostles, i.e. the magistrate, the gift of infallibility. That means that they cannot do anything wrong. They cannot make errors in matters of faith and morals. So again, there are multiple layers that that is misguided. But first, it's just very, very, very thin biblical support. And further, the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church has declared doctrines that are just contrary to Scripture. We think of indulgences. You know, 
making purchases to get years out of purgatory. Nowhere to be found in Scripture. And what's more, like, they have shown themselves to be fallible, to be able to make errors. They've contradicted themselves. They're, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is currently is very fuzzy on the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation. So, there are things that would compete with Scripture to be a church's authority. Things like tradition and an official teaching office. But these aren't the only competitors. There is also pragmatism. This is something we touched on at the beginning of our time. Think of pragmatism as doing whatever works. Doing whatever works. We saw that the word of God is naturally divisive. It's polarizing. A lot of people don't like it. So Christians would be tempted to soften the word's message so that it's not as divisive. And Christians would be tempted to unite people around and draw people in something besides the word. This looks like a church saying, we're smart and hip too, so why don't you join us? It looks like a church saying, we're progressive, just like you, so why don't you join us? Even for traditional churches, they can rely on other things besides the word. We've always done this, so we're going to keep doing it. The danger of having pragmatism as a church's ultimate authority, one author writes, is that the church risks potentially relying on the power of people's idols, things that shouldn't be the main thing, to build a church. Relying on idols to build a church. These things would compete to be the ultimate authority of our church. But we say that Scripture and Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And why? Why? Why is the Word of God our authority? Well, that's the, one of the big questions we address. Now, I don't love lists. You've heard me say that before. But this question is just begging to be answered with a list. And I have six reasons why the Word of God, that is the Bible, is our authority. So number one, Scripture is our authority because it's God's Word. The Bible has very, uh, a lot of claims for itself. And one of the most famous comes in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can find it on page 996. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this passage, we find what is called the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we begin in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. The key words here are breathed out by God. This is true, not just for some of Scripture. It says all of Scripture. And we find that even in the New Testament, the authors are conscious that what they are writing is equivalent to what the Spirit inspired in the Old Testament. For example, Peter, at the end of one of his letters, he places 
Paul's letters on the same plane as the other scriptures. All scripture breathed out by God. And as you read the Bible, you read this audacious phrase over and over again. Thus says the Lord. And the fact that God inspired all scripture means that he is the authority behind all the words written down, not just when he's directly quoted. Now, this doesn't always look like God dictating the exact words he wanted human authors to write. Rather, inspiration, that doctrine means God worked through the human authors and their personalities and their circumstances so that what was written was fully their words and fully the words God wanted them to write. So friends, this means God is the ultimate authority behind Scripture, behind his word. It means Scripture is an extension of God himself. So in other words, by having God's word as our authority, we have God himself as our authority. Now, you could address the objection here that appealing to what the Bible says about itself to prove that the Bible is God's word is circular reasoning. And you'd be right. But the thing is, anything that claims to be an ultimate authority must appeal to itself to prove its own authority. Because if it appealed to something else, then that other thing would be ultimate over it. That other thing would be the ultimate authority. So you have a friend who says, logical reasoning is the basis for all truth. You're saying, oh, friend, that's great. How do you know that? He says, well, it's the most logical thing. I mean, this is what it is. He claims to have the ultimate authority. So it's not that we don't have other good reasons, other proofs of the truthfulness of the word or uh, other philosophical arguments as well, but at the end of the day, this is the ultimate authority, and making, in listening to the Bible's claims is a legitimate argument. So if you want to know a person's opinion about God, ask her opinion of God's word. He inspired it. He reveals himself through it. He stands behind it. God's word is our authority because it's God's word. Number two, Scripture is our ultimate authority because it is objective. Because it is objective. What I mean by that is this. Scripture is God's word written. It's written down. There's a repeated emphasis throughout the Bible that God told his people to write down his words. And the fact that the Bible is written adds to its authoritative nature because it's mean, it means that it's clearer, that it's more objective, that we can't add anything to it. Whereas if we just had an oral language, if we just had oral tradition, and they would compromise all those things, it wouldn't be as clear it wouldn't be as objective, and we could most certainly add to it. But we have God's word written. And the biblical authors themselves are aware of the benefit of having a written word that would preserve the word of God. 
A couple of examples. You could turn there if you like. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, page 855. Luke chapter 1. You'll find the preface to Luke's gospel, and he's explaining why he's writing. He's explaining why he's writing what he's writing. Luke chapter 1. Luke says that others have composed accounts of Jesus. And in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to do what? To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Writing for certainty. Not all. You can look at John chapter 20, page 907. And find that the Apostle John also knew the importance of God's word being written. John chapter 20. Begin in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Discuss this more later, but for now, understand the gift that it is to have the words of the people who saw Jesus directly, who spent three years with him. We have their words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down and preserved for us in great binding, in reliable translations. I mean, this is a gift, and we let it collect dust. One more example. Scripture is our ultimate authority because it's objective. And the Apostle Paul chimes in on the importance of God's word being written. 1 Corinthians 10, he speaks of the Old Testament. In particular, Israel's wilderness wanderings. And he says something interesting there. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says that those things were written for our instruction. Preserved so that we would learn. Number three, God's word is our authority because it is infallible and inerrant. It is infallible and inerrant. Infallible means it cannot err. Inerrant means it has no errors. That is, in everything it affirms and addresses, everything that it talks about. So the Bible doesn't talk about calculus. The Bible doesn't talk about how to speak Chinese. It is inerrant in what it affirms. Again, we take this from the Bible's claims for itself and the fact that God is the one who inspired it. We take it from the doctrine of inspiration. So look at the Bible's claims for itself. It's full of claims of its complete truthfulness. Take, for example, Proverbs 30, verse 5. It says simply, every word of God proves true. You can also go to Psalm 119. It begins on page 512. An extended meditation on God's word. Psalm 119, verse 86, says, All your commandments are sure. Verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 160, The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
the Bible's claims for itself. And you know whose opinion we should really be interested in? One who rose from the dead. What is Jesus' view of Scripture? Does he have a low view of it? No. No, friends. You turn to a place like Matthew chapter 5. You find on page 810, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So Jesus himself affirms the authority of Scripture. And he affirms that he is the center and fulfillment of it all. So friends, the Bible is infallible and inerrant. Because if it is the case that God himself inspired the words behind it, then it must be true. Inerrancy is based on the character of God, that God is truth and he cannot lie. So if the Bible is not infallible and inerrant, then we begin to have doubts. We begin to have doubts about his trustworthiness. We begin to have doubts about who God really is. We begin to have doubts about the reliability of what Jesus has done. And then we begin to have doubts about our salvation itself. So the inerrancy, the infallibility of the word of God is crucial. It's crucial. Number four, God's word is our authority because it is sufficient. Because it is sufficient. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 asks. By guarding it according to your word. We read earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that scripture is inspired by God. And why? It says so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if you read earlier in that chapter, you'll find Paul explaining to Timothy that scriptures are able to make people wise unto salvation. So what do we have here? We have here God giving us everything we need to know about him. Everything we need to know about how he saves us from sin. Here we have God giving us everything we need to know how to live and follow after Jesus Christ. This, does that reality reflect your affection for God's word? Everything, sufficient. Number five, God's word is our authority because of how God uses it because of how God uses it. This relates to God's power behind his word. Friends, God's word is the most powerful force in all the universe. It is the primary way he gives life, his word working through his spirit. Think of what we read in Ezekiel. It's printed in your bulletin. God took Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones, a graveyard. And he asked Ezekiel a real deep question. He asked him, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And what happens? God's word goes out, and through his breath, his spirit, the bones are brought to life. 
God's word working through his spirit is how we were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Romans 10 verse 17 proclaims it simply. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God uses his word. Last, number six, God's word is our authority because we are told it is to be our authority. We are told it is to be our authority. John 14, 15, Jesus said that if we love him, then we will keep his commandments. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? For Christians, those who follow Jesus, listening to and obeying God's word, it's not optional. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's a mark that we are truly Christians, that we truly love the Lord. God's people listen to God's word. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. We are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. This is because our hearts have been changed, so that now we desire to follow the Lord and to seek him. So, friend, does that describe you? Do you have no other hope besides Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and a good standing before God? And if you have that hope, do you now long to follow him? Do you love him and his word? Now, sin may fight against that desire. I know it does with me. Sin may fight against that desire in us, but Christians are those who have been changed by God's word through his spirit so that we want to hear from our Lord in his word. So our ultimate authority is the Bible, the God-inspired, written, inerrant, sufficient, and powerful word. What does it mean for us to listen? What does it mean for us to be a church built on the word? This gets to our last question. What does it look like for the word to be a church's authority? Just spend a few minutes considering how we can apply this truth to our lives together. And I'm sorry, it's another list. I think there are at least four ways the authority of the word displays itself in the life of a local church. At least four ways. Number one, having God's word as our authority means that it shapes what we believe. It shapes what we believe. The Apostle John said, he, said that he wrote his gospel so that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So that we would believe. And as a local church that stands on the authority of the word, we believe the testimony of Christ that's preserved for us here. And because the Bible is God's word, it is where we go to know who God is. It shapes what we believe about him. Even the biblical authors write of realities that people must believe in order to be Christians. That churches must believe in order to be churches. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Find it on page 961 if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. God's word shapes what we believe. Beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Short, concise statements about what Christians believe. And through the centuries, Christians and churches have followed that pattern by summarizing the Bible's teachings in things like creeds and statements of faith. And those things are only true if they are based on what's in here. The Bible shapes what we believe. Number two, having God's word as our authority means that we are committed to preaching it. It means we are committed to preaching it. Preach the word, Paul commanded Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. We saw how God gives life through his word about his son and by the power of the spirit. And how does he do that today? What do you think? Don't you think it'd be done through something like vibrant music and relevant programs? Not through some guy standing up front talking for some odd amount of time. But think about it. What is necessary for life and for growth? It's God's word working through his spirit. Someone has to pick up the Bible, God's word, and read it. And someone has to explain it so that people will understand it and it will be applied to us. And the Spirit works in the hearts of those who hear to believe that word and love Christ more. So for years, Christians have associated worship with music. And it's not necessarily wrong. But it's not complete. You know, for the majority of church history, Christians believed that the most essential part of worship was not music. It was hearing God's word and responding to it with their lives. Friends, that's worship. So a local church stands on the authority of Scripture by preaching the Bible. This means the regular diet of preaching should be expositional. We should be exposing the message of this text, not imposing our opinions on it. Not that other styles of preaching aren't occasionally helpful. This would be one of those instances. <laughs> but the vast majority of the time, it is best to move straight through books so that the point of the biblical passage is the point of the sermon. To do that well, to do that properly, preachers of God's word must know how a passage fits within its context and within the storyline of the entire Bible. And to do that, preachers have to see how the text relates to Christ because Christ is the promise, fulfillment, and center of the scriptures. He said so himself that scripture testifies of him. So the point is, it's not just that we preach the word. This isn't just a slogan that we stand on and say, amen, we're right. It's how we preach the word. We preach it according to the original intention of the biblical authors. 
And we preach it with Christ and his gospel at the center. Number three, having God's word as our authority means that it is our basis for how we worship. It is our basis for how we worship. What do you think? How should we worship when we come together? Should we just rely on our instincts and do what we think is best? I would caution you from that. You read the Bible, and we see other evidence. You think of how the Israelites just got out of Egypt, like miraculous, 10 different miracles, 400 years of slavery. A few days later, how do the Israelites instruct Aaron that they should worship the Lord? They come up with a golden calf. Think of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu who are said to have offered strange fire to the Lord on their own, literally meaning unauthorized fire. In reading the Bible, it's clear that humans have been unreliable guides for inventing ways to approach God. So even some early churches were guilty of this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that when they came together, it was not for the better, but for the worse. So that's why when we gather together on Sunday morning, everything we do is clearly warranted by Scripture, either through clear command or a good and necessary implication of that command. Everything we do. You can open up your bulletin. Go ahead, open up your bulletin and notice it. What do we begin with? We begin by hearing God address us in his word. We sing hymns, psalms, and songs Because we are commanded to. And side note, we aim to sing the truth of Scripture, to engage our affections through that truth, primarily through that truth. And those affections can be heightened by poetry and by music, but the first thing they should be heightened by is the truth of Scripture. We aim to sing together. Our voices should be the primary instrument that we hear. Anyway. Side note over. I can talk more about that. You look at our bulletin. We pray as we are commanded to pray. And we pray after the models given in Scripture. We pray in thanksgiving. We pray in praise. We pray in confession of our sin. We pray in intercession. We read Scripture as we are told to give attention to it. Paul writes that to Timothy. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. We give financially as we've been instructed and as it was exampled by churches in Corinth and Philippi. We hear God's word preached. We baptize as Jesus commanded. Celebrate the Lord's Supper as Jesus commanded. Friends, the word of God is our authority in our worship. Last, number four. The word of God is our authority in our entire life together. Admittedly, this is a bit of a catch-all. Like, sometimes I'll give off a list and just close it with and stuff. This is sort of the and stuff of it. It is our authority in our entire life together. The Bible tells us what we are to be about. Faith working through love. It gives us our mission to go, to baptize, to teach people to follow Jesus. God's word relates to all life, whether it be in priorities and resolving conflict, in how leaders are to make pastoral decisions, 
or even traits we should be known for. You think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In our life together, we should aim to be like the Thessalonians. Paul wrote of them in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, that when they heard the word of God from him, they did not accept it as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Because we love Christ, we love and follow the word about him. So the word shaping our life together means that the authority, the centrality, and the ministry of that word do not end at Sundays at noon, even though we long for noon on Sundays. It does not end here. One author writes, the preacher opens his mouth and utters a word, God's word. But that word doesn't just sound once. It echoes or reverberates. It reverberates through the church's music and prayers. It reverberates through the conversations between elders and members, members and guests, older Christians and younger Christians. God's word bounces around the life of the church. The church building doors open, and God's word should echo out the doors, down the street, and into members' homes and workplaces. And it's no wonder, friends, that when the book of Acts describes how the church grows, it uses one familiar refrain. The word of God advanced. So think about what you've done for the last 40 some odd minutes. You have declared the authority of God and God's word. You have done it through patiently hearing and heeding God's word. And what you have done is a reflection of the gospel and our salvation. The gospel is not something we do. It's an announcement of what God has done for us. Like when we sit under the word, we think, what have we contributed to it? What have you contributed to this message? All you've contributed to it is hearing it, heeding it, and receiving it. Think about the gospel and your salvation. What have you contributed to it? The sin that made it necessary? And really, all we contribute is hearing it, heeding it, receiving it by faith. So, friends, that is submitting to the word of God. That is keeping the word the main thing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to be people of your word, to treasure it because we treasure you. Would your word shape our life as a church? Would it shape what we love? Would it shape what we believe? Would it shape our mission, what we are about? Would it shape how we live in our communities? And God, would it shape our hope? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.